0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Uh, Nicole's going to read for us. Okay, it says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. As many of you know, my family and I moved back to San Diego one year ago from Indonesia. And in fact, just this last week, we passed our one-year mark of being back in the United States. And it wasn't that long after we had moved back that I was at the UTC Mall, doing what most people do at the UTC mall, which is drive around, looking for a parking spot. When I came nose to nose with another driver and we stopped, our cars are facing each other and I'm motioning him like, get on your side of the road and he's motioning me to get on the other side of the road and I'm saying, no, I'm not driving around. You got to be on your side of the road. There was a lot of frantic waving, felt like several minutes, both of us telling the other person to move. And then I had a moment of clarity. I was on the wrong side of the road. In Indonesia, we drove on the left side of the road. And here in the United States, you guys know, we—you know, you drive on the right side of the road. Uh, I had been living in Indonesia for two years, been driving there, driving on the left side, gotten used to it. Uh, So much so that, you know, as I'm just driving around the parking lot looking for a place, I just kind of reverted back to what I had just, the environment I had just been in. Found myself on the wrong side of the road. Luckily, the driver was a nice person and just laughed it off as I finally was like, oh my gosh, you know, you know, the whole like, I'm sorry, wave, you can't hear me, but I'm telling you I'm really sorry. So, but I had, I, you know, I had, Learn to drive in the United States. I spent most of my life in the United States driving on the right side of the road, but I needed a course correction at that time. I needed realignment. If you're like me, we can get used to our environment sometimes, so much so that we don't realize that we're wrong until someone points it out to us. We need a course correction. And the scriptures provide those course corrections for Christians. The world can easily entice us into thinking that the wrong way is indeed the right way to go. And as Christians, we often need that gentle reminder of what is actually true and right and good, right? We need to be waved over to the correct side of the road often. And then for the Christian, this becomes our prayer. Lord, help me fill in the blank. Lord, guide me fill in the blank. Today we're gonna look at Psalm 67. So if you're there, I hope you are following along. We're looking at Psalm 67, which although is written as a song, it's really a heartfelt prayer. And my hope is that it becomes our prayer too. And if there's any need of a course correction or a realignment in our hearts or our lives, that we would heed, the gentle leading of the Lord. So my prayer for this morning is that through this psalm, we would take to heart the four main themes I believe it shows us. Number one, that the kingdom of God is expanding across the whole earth. Number two, that God uses his people, his church. Number three, to bring joy to all peoples, Number four, in order that he would get the praise he deserves. those are the themes I believe we see in this psalm here. And in order, in order to examine those four themes, I want us to ask ourselves three questions related to the kingdom of God, questions we're going to see answered in this text. Now, if you're a note taker or a linear thinker, you're, you're like four themes, three questions. How's that work? I don't know. It does somehow. But so number one, the first question is, what is the scope? Of God's kingdom? What is the breadth of God's kingdom? Number two, what does God's kingdom look like? What is the nature of God's kingdom? And number three, how is his kingdom spread here on earth? What is, what's the agency or the means of God's kingdom? And like I mentioned, this psalm was written as a song, but it's it's more like a prayer. Unlike other psalms, we don't know who the author is, But when you read it, you get the sense that it's written with great joy. There's a lot of of collective language in it. It's a communal psalm, and it captures the heart of the psalmist. And when I read it, I can't help but want it to become my prayer too. And so for us, I hope that we see God's heart for the world in this and the joy that we have to be a part of it, because this psalm is going to show us the breadth of God's kingdom. It's going to show us what his kingdom means for humanity, and it's going to show us how God's kingdom will advance. and I mentioned the the four themes through this psalm, the first being that God's kingdom is expanding to the whole earth, and that's probably the most evident thing we uh, you see when you read through this psalm. And the psalm is actually often referred to as a missionary psalm, and it's not hard to see why if you glance through it, you'll notice terms like. All earth, all nations, peoples, all peoples. In fact, phrases like that are mentioned 10 times in these seven verses. This psalm is about God's reign expanding throughout the whole earth. And what is God's reign? Well, look at verse 2. Verse 2 calls it his way or his saving power. This is God's not-of-this-world kingdom what is the kingdom of God? We're going to talk about that more later. But quite simply, if we're to define God's kingdom very simply, it's God's reign through God's people over God's place. And it sounds obvious, but the kingdom of God is about God, right? The kingdom of God is about God. It's God as king. We could translate it as the reign of God or the kingship of God, but it is the vision of a world world. Reordered around the powerful love of God in Christ. And it has no boundaries. I remember learning in school about the different empires or kingdoms of the earth, right? The, like the Babylonian Empire, the Mesopotamian Empire, and they'd always have this map that would show the how far it expanded and then it contracted, maybe to expanded a little more, and they'd see the boundaries of that kingdom. But it's clear that God did not intend there to be any earthly boundaries on his kingdom. John Calvin says of this poem, he says, it's a prayer of the ancient church for the appearance of the Messiah and the universal diffusion of his gospel. And recall for a moment where we find our passage today in the Bible it's in the Old Testament. Right? This is well before Jesus spoke the words in Matthew 28 of go and make disciples of all nations. And I think we can often, as Christians, be quick to point to passages like the Great Commission to affirm God's plan for the spread of the kingdom throughout the earth, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. But we find that the global scope of God's plan, the expansion of his kingdom, is evident in, throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. It was not a new thing that God instituted when Jesus rose from the dead, right? It was not as if God in the Old Testament was focused on Israel, had Israel in mind, and then all of a sudden that the appearance of Jesus shifted towards a global focus. No, from the beginning, we're going to see this in a minute, it was God's intent that his redemptive power would be known throughout the whole Earth, or all peoples. We can see the heart of God's rescue plan for the whole world through the whole Bible. right? Psalm 67 is an excellent example of that. This psalm is a reminder of God's unfolding kingship on Earth. Israel, in Bible times, if you've read the Old Testament, you'll notice that they no doubt had a very narrow national sentiment. Right? For them, it was, okay, God and Israel. But passages like this, right, like this Psalm 67, make it plain to me that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit as God is reminding, providing a course correction for Israel, reminding them that God is God for all peoples, not just Israel. Right? And this is from the beginning, From the beginning, we read in Genesis 1, the very first verse or the very first chapter of the first book of the Bible, that God made humankind in his image that we would multiply and fill the earth. Right. He made us in his image that we would fill the earth, fill the earth with what? With his image. Verse 27 in Genesis 1 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. Adam and Eve were meant to be royal representatives of the king, commissioned to steward creation, and fill the earth with the image of God, with God's goodness. Now, unfortunately we know the story, right? We know what happened. Their rebellion broke relationship with God and fractured the goodness of God's image, right? God's image here on earth. This is further seen in the story of Noah. God's people were supposed to fill the earth as image bearers or reflections of God, reflections of his nature, his character, Instead, Genesis 6 tells us that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Not filled with his image, but filled with violence. So uh, the Lord told Noah to build him an arky, arky. Lord told Noah, that's how I learned it, to build him an arky, arky. Right, God had Noah build an ark sent the flood, I'm not a worship leader, you can tell you right now, Um, (laughs) rescuing Noah and his family. And when they landed, right, when they landed, Noah built an altar to the Lord uh, as an offering, as a thanksgiving. And the Bible says that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There it is again, Genesis 9.1, be fruitful, fill the earth, Right. God's plan was still the plan to fill the earth with the goodness of his image. And a couple chapters later, we glimpse another example of God's plan and man's rebellion in the story of the Tower of Babel. It's a crazy story. Again, God's redemptive plan, right, was that his image would fill the earth, throughout the whole earth. Genesis 11, though, the people came together. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower With its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It was no longer, let's make God's name great, but let's make a name for ourselves. And even the people weren't spreading and filling the earth. They said, lest we be dispersed. Let's come together. Let's not fill the earth anymore, right? Rebellion from God's plan. So what did God do? He confused their language. Verse 9, it says, from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. God's like, you guys didn't do it. I'm going to do it for you. So he dispersed them throughout the face of the earth. And one chapter later from the Tower of Babel, Genesis 12, is where we really begin to see God's plan unfold. It's a beautiful section of scripture that poignantly sets the stage for God's rescue plan for sinners, for all nations. Let's actually turn there. So if you want to keep a finger in Psalm 67, you can. We're going to turn to Genesis 12, just the first couple verses. If I get there before you, I'm not going to wait. Sorry. Uh, Genesis 12, verses just one through three. This is the call of Abraham, who is at this point called Abram. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dis- who, who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know how the narrative continues on from there. Abraham's family becomes the nation of Israel through whom Jesus would appear here on earth and graft all believers into that family through faith in him. Although shattered by man's rebellion, God's kingdom project has not changed. Has not changed. It is to rescue sinners like us, like me, that we might become reflections of him for all peoples over the whole earth. Or as our passage tells us in Psalm 67, that his way may be known on earth and his saving power among all nations. See, it didn't end with Abraham's family or the nation of Israel. As followers of Christ, were part of Abraham's family of faith. That all the families of the earth would be blessed. God's plan has always been global in scope. It didn't begin with Matthew 28 or the Great Commission. It's always been from Genesis on. And his plan is still unfolding today. It is not done. Which leads us to wonder, what does the psalmist mean by all nations or all peoples? Right? Does all nations mean The 195 or so, it actually depends on who you ask, how many nations there are. Does it mean all those countries that are present today? Or when he says all peoples, does he mean that all the people, everybody on earth, all 7.96 billion people as of yesterday, will know Christ? If you step back and look at the rest of scripture, right, where it talks about all nations in Matthew or in other parts of the scripture, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the 195 or so countries or nations as we know them today. When the Bible speaks of all nations or all peoples, these are groups of people with distinct language and culture or ethno-linguistic groups, groups in which those national geopolitical lines that you see on a map don't really mean much. Uh, Let me give you an example. If you notice that I look a little more sunburned than you you last saw me, that's because my wife and I just got back from an anniversary trip to Italy, which was super fun, just a couple days ago. And we were on this island called Sardinia, which is the second largest island in the Mediterranean. It's off the west coast of Italy, uh, called Sardinia. And while we were there, we were at a hotel, and there was a large group of high school students at this hotel on some sort of trip, like 30 high school students, um, you know, which we're on our anniversary trip. So I was like, what? (laughs) Really? Um, But they were fine. But I asked the waiter, I said, where are these kids from? I just wanted to know their story. And I asked him, I said, are they from Sardinia? And I thought his answer was interesting because he said, no, they're from Italy. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, this is Italy. Like, why would you say it like that? Again, later on in our trip, we were driving in a taxi cab, and I asked our taxi driver, and I said, when you travel, where do you tell people you're from? And he said, oh, I tell people I'm from Sardinia. I said, well, what about when you are in maybe America or someplace where they don't know about the island of Sardinia? What do you say? Do you say you're from Italy? And he just smiled and then didn't say anything. See, for him, Sardinia is a distinct people, Right. And Sardinia even has its own language, which is still spoken today, although with globalization that has blurred some, and they speak mostly Italian there. But Sardinian used to be the predominant language of the island. And it's a, it's a romance language, but it's actually more different to Italian than either Spanish or French is, so much so that during the war, the Italian government, the Italian military, actually used Sardinians uh, as code talkers, similar to how the Navajo were used uh, with the U.S. Army. So, while to you know today the culture of Sardinia and the language is minimized due through a lot of educational and political pressure, Sardinians are still considered a separate people group, right? If we, and if we stepped back a hundred years ago, and we, You know, somebody, an Italian in Rome wanted to take the gospel to Sardinia, he could not preach the gospel in Italian. It wouldn't be understood. He could not hand them an Italian Bible. They wouldn't know how to read it. It's a distinct ethno-linguistic group separated by language and culture. According to experts in this field, there are over 17,000 of these distinct people groups in the world today. 17,428 to be exact. And for the spread of God's kingdom, when we we read passages like this, that the, the gospel is going to go forth to all nations or that we're supposed to go forth into all nations, what does that mean for us? Well, for us, a people group or a nation as the Bible describes it, here is the largest group within which the gospel can spread without hitting a barrier of understanding or acceptance. And these barriers could be anything. The simple one is language, but it could also be things like dialect, culture, caste, religious tradition, location, even common history. These can all be barriers to acceptance that make these groups, these 17,000 different groups, distinct. From each other. Of those 17,000 groups, there are 7,415 of these groups that are considered unreached. What does that mean? There are no local believers with enough numbers or resources to effectively spread the gospel within those people groups, meaning that somebody needs to go and tell that group about Jesus because there's not enough happening with that people group. That means that God's redemptive power, his saving power, has not reached whole groups of people, over 7,000 groups. We're talking billions of people in the world today do not have adequate resources or numbers of Christians amongst them for the gospel to spread. There are even those among them with not even an effort to make the Bible known or any missionaries going to these groups. God's rescue plan needs to go there, right? In Indonesia alone, where my family and I were for two years, there are 787 ethnolinguistic groups, 787. Over 30% of those groups, 241, have no Gospel movement in them. That means the local church is fledgling. It's not even big enough to evangelize and tell people about Jesus within that group. As another example, several years ago, I was in northern Thailand visiting an orphan work there that had a heart for evangelism for groups like these, for unreached people groups in northern Thailand and southern Myanmar. And so we went up to southern Myanmar and crossed the border. Uh, to an area controlled by one of these people groups called the Shan. It's called the Shan State. Uh, It's governed by them, which is separate than the Burmese army. Um, So we're literally crossing the border unknown to the Burmese army, but within a rebel state. It was an interesting time. I didn't get a passport stamp, unfortunately, as a passport stamp collector. But the people group that we went to, They don't speak Burmese, which is the language of Myanmar. They don't speak Thai. They have their own language. They have their own culture. That people group requires a distinct missionary effort that they could hear about Jesus. Different than going to tell Thais about Jesus or Burmese about Jesus. And they are just one of the over 7,000 people groups in the world that need Jesus. And God's redemptive story, his rescue plan, it includes all peoples. It includes all the 17, over 17,000 people groups. How do we know this? Well, in scripture, heaven's rescue plan culminates in Revelation 7. So, okay, we started, we went from Psalm to Genesis. Now flip with me to Revelation 7. I think I'll wait for you this time because it's such a good passage. Revelation 7. We're going to be starting in verse 9. This is where we see the culmination of God's rescue plan. This is what us as Christians get to look forward to. So, Revelation 7, verse 9, says this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That's what we have to look forward to, where we're going to be standing with the multitude of the nations, worshiping God together. People from all these distinct groups, uh, people groups across the whole world, right? This is This is God's mission. This is his Missio Dei, the mission of God that is expanding throughout the earth where he is renewing all things to himself. As Ephesians 1 puts it, he is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, on earth and on earth. Okay, so God's plan of reconciliation includes the whole world. What does that mean for me? All right, what does that mean for us here at Painted Rock, at Painted Rock Elementary? We're going to get to that uh, in a minute, but let's first talk about what that looks like for a broken world. And spoiler alert, God's mission involves his church. But what does the kingdom of God look like? When we talk about the kingdom of God, which we briefly defined at the beginning as God's reign through God's people over God's place. What does that mean? What does God want for the nations? What is his desire for all peoples? So I believe this psalm kind of shows us four things. Again, I had four themes, three questions, now four things. I don't know. If you're taking notes, I apologize. But number one, what does God's reign look like? It looks like his way. Look in verse 2 of Psalm 67. It says, That your way may be known on earth. Now, this is distinct from just his name, right? It's not just that people know his name, right? Matthew 7 reminds us that not where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's more than just his name or just knowledge of who he is, but it's his way, his law, his reign, his righteousness. This is related to discipleship, right? As we seek to follow the way of Jesus. In the language of our church, this is what our lives and community are reshaped into out of a loving relationship with Christ Jesus. This is God's will done on earth as in heaven. Okay, number one is his way. What does God's reign look like? Number two, his saving power. Again, this is in verse two. It says, that you're, saving, uh, you're saving power among all nations. That's his salvation, right? That's salvation. God's reign is a saving reign. And we're Trevor talked about this a lot. We're not just saved from something, but for something. We are saved from death and for life. We are saved from shame and for glory. We are saved from slavery and for freedom. From sin, for following our Savior. From the kingdom of darkness and for the kingdom of light. God's reign looks like his way, his saving power, and it looks like joy in him. Verse 4 in Psalm 67. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity, and you guide the nations upon earth. Selah. There is joy in Christ. We who have known his saving power, are we experiencing the joy that is in Christ? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him, that we might be filled with the gladness and the joy of knowing our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to note that gladness and joy in him is precipitated by God as judge and God as guide in verse 4 there. When we make God our judge and our guide, we experience his joy and his gladness. There's a cheesy sermon alliteration in there, if any of you care to find it. But God as our judge, this isn't condemnation, right? For there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. But God's judgment is just. Look at this example we see in Micah. Well, don't look at it. Listen to this example we see in Micah 4, where it says, He shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. The result of God's judgment is peace. The result of God's judgment is peace. And God as guide, well, what kind of guide is God? Well, He guides us into all truth. John 16. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me into glory, Psalm 73. He guides us by his strength, Exodus 15. He guides us forever, Psalm 48. He guides our feet into the way of peace, Luke 1. As a guide, God is both present and personal. God is both present and personal as our guide. And when God is our guide and our judge, we get to experience the joy of, in him and I, I don't think there's a coincidence. You guys may have noticed the term Selah" after uh, verse four there. I don't think it's a coincidence. That's, that, that's where we find that term. It's kind of a musical term means rest, but it's an opportunity to pause for reverence, a moment to realize for those going through the psalm the joy that we have in Christ Jesus. One of my favorite passages is in Psalm 16. Um, which incidentally actually was my um, Bible part of my Bible reading plan this morning. I didn't know that. Uh, it was already written into the sermon this morning, but it was a fresh reminder for me. Psalm 16, verse 9 and then 11, it says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How sweet the love of God. Amen. For those sitting here who Christ has redeemed, we have received what the angels called good news of great joy to the shepherds. When we are with God, when God is our guide and our judge, we get to experience the joy of Christ. And what's interesting is that our joy in him is directly connected to our witness of him. Jesus' words in John 17 read, That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That the world may believe when we abide in Christ, we experience the joy of Christ, and the world is shown its beautiful Savior. What does God's reign look like? It looks like his way, his saving power, joy in him, and number four, looks like the worship of him. This psalm, Psalm 67, verse 3, says, Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Again, it's repeated in verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, God, O God, let all the peoples praise you. This repetition seen in the psalm, verse three and verse five, show the psalmist's heart. It's a way the psalmist can emphasize or amplify the content. Here in Western culture, in our our own poetry, we often use rhyming scheme to do that. In the ancient Near East literature, they often use repetition. In God's kingdom, God gets the honor. God gets the praise of all peoples and his people get the benefit of it. The joy in him of knowing their creator. Psalm 145 says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is worthy of the praise of all peoples. And this is not some twisted, self-aggrandizing promotion by God. God knows that only when we are in right relationship with him, which is to say, in worship of him, do we experience our deepest sense of purpose, of joy and meaning in life. This psalm shows us that the kingdom of God is first and foremost about the worship of the one true king by all nations. Charles Spurgeon, you may have heard of him, he said, the great theme of the psalm is the participation of the Gentiles in the worship of Jehovah. Charles Spurgeon only got one theme. I got four. I don't know. I'll just leave it at that. If you stayed with me so far, congratulations. We had three questions that looked into four themes. One question was about what is the scope of God's kingdom, right? It's to all people groups. What does his reign, his kingdom look like? It's his way and his salvation, which begets joy from his people as we respond to him in worship or praise of him. And that leads us to the final question of how. How does he do it? What are the means of God's kingdom expansion? We find the answer indicated by the subtle transition in verse 2. Let me read verse 1 and 2 again. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. In other translations, verse 2 starts, So that, so that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. God blesses his people so that his kingdom would be made known among the nations. The church, capital C, the God's global church is God's means of sharing Christ the rescuer with a broken world. We are part of God's kingdom expanding. You are part of the expansion of the kingdom of God, of God's rescue plan for all nations. We are first a consequence of that expanding kingdom, then a catalyst, as a catalyst sent to proclaim the gospel. And don't forget who we're to proclaim it to, to all nations, to all people groups. That doesn't mean each of us is called to go and go buy a plane ticket and go to those 7,000 people, who, people groups who haven't heard. But it does necessitate involvement from us. As one pastor puts it, there is no one who is insignificant in the purpose of God. What are other ways we can participate? Right? This morning we heard about Eden, who is in northern Africa. Right? And as a church, we got to send her out and we can pray for her. You could pray for her this week. We need psalms like this sometimes, right? We need course corrections sometimes because our view can become blinded or we can find ourselves in the wrong lane. Frequently, we need this realignment, this course correction to remember how God is at work and that we have this opportunity, this mandate to be involved and as the we as the vehicle for his gospel are propelled by the blessings that he has given us from his hands right verse 1 may god be gracious to us and bless us so that so that cuz we are blessed to be a blessing this reminds us of what we saw earlier in genesis 12 where god says i will make i will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, right? He's speaking to Abraham. I'm going to bless you that you can bless others, right? And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In fact, verses 1 and 2 in this psalm are bookended by verse 7. Now, verse 7, if you look at verse 7, it doesn't have the English phrase, so that or that, but it is actually implied there. Verse seven could read, "God shall bless us, so that all the ends of the earth will fear Him." And what do the blessings of God look like? Surely that can mean monetary blessing, but this is this is too myopic if that's all we think it is in life, and a great misunderstanding of what the f- what faith, what the life in Christ looks like for us. To get an idea of what how God has blessed us as followers of Christ, we can look to the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Beatitudes, which means blessedness, is really a a summary of Christian blessings. You guys are familiar with them, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven or God. Don't you hate it when pastors do that? (laughs) Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, merciful, for they shall receive mercy and so on. So how are we blessed? If we look at the Beatitudes, right, and look at the second half of each one of those phrases, we receive the kingdom of heaven, salvation, saved not only from something, but for something, as we talked about earlier. We are comforted, right? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, Psalm 34. We inherit the earth, This has eschatological dimensions to it. We are satisfied by righteousness. We receive mercy. We are called sons and daughters of God. We are given a family. We receive the kingdom of heaven. We have rewards in heaven. And notice in the Beatitudes, both the present and the future nature of these blessings. We can receive mercy and be comforted here on earth. And we look forward to the blessing of being in God's presence and the heavenly rewards when we are with him one day in heaven. This tells me two things. It tells me that there are blessings for us to experience in the here and now. But here and now is not, the, not where we experience the totality of all those blessings. Contrast this with the prosperity gospel, which is about the here and now and the material. Similarly, we know that the blessings here evoked in this psalm had immediate tangible application for the nation of Israel. God would bless them with rain in its season, right? Crops would grow uh, protection from their enemies so that they would be a blessing to all nations and know that there is a mighty and present God the outcome of which would be the fear of God's name going out among all the peoples of the earth. A blessing is a gift from God that glorifies God, helps his people, and through them reaches out to share the gospel with the dying world. We are a blessed people, right? Amen? We have so much. We really do. We have so much, both material and eternal. God has given us those things so that, so that, God's kingdom would reach all peoples. Not everyone, as I said, is going to sent out, but maybe some of you will be sent out. But we are called to be a part. This has always been God's intent for his church from the very beginning, right? That we would fill the earth with, the, with his image, multiply and fill the earth with his image. We would be image bearers of his goodness a broken world. And for today, the direct application for today, let's enjoy Jesus, right? Let's enjoy Jesus, because when when we enjoy Jesus, he gets the glory and the honor and the praise. Alexander McLaren, who was a Scottish expositor from the 1800s and had this super gnarly neck beard that I saw online— an inspiration to us all, um, said this. This psalm is a truly missionary psalm. In its clear anticipation of the universal spread of the knowledge of God, in its firm grasp of the thought that the church has its blessings in order to the evangelization of the world, and in its intensity of longing that from all the ends of the earth, a shout of praise may go up to God, who has sent some rays of His light into them all, and committed His people the task of carrying a brighter illumination to every land. Before we close, let's be reminded of the posture which, with which uh, the psalmist starts this prayer. It's found at the very beginning. Of the psalm, the very beginning of verse 1 says, May God be gracious to us. It begins when we humbly recognize that we are in need of grace. The psalmist recognizes that it is only by God's grace that we get to be participants in his kingdom expansion. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's God. But he still gives us that beautiful invitation to enjoy him, that he would be praised among all nations. Let's pray. Lord, God, be gracious to us and bless us. Make your face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. Lord, I pray for us that as we go today that we would get to experience the fullness of joy that we find in you. Lord, thank you, God, that you are a God who rescues us sinners and brings us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. God, I pray that um, we would recognize the things that you've given us, God, whether our time, our talent, or our treasure. God, our meant to be a blessing that the nations may know that you are God. Lord, thank you, Lord, that you are in the business of saving people and that you are worthy of praise. So we praise you this morning. We love you, Jesus. Amen.